Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. You're listening to the COVID-19 special episodes. This podcast is about effective learning and effective teaching, and now we all have to do this with the new wrinkle provided by COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, which is sweeping the world in a pandemic the likes of which we have not seen since AIDS, polio, and the 1918 Spanish flu. As a result of COVID-19, many universities, colleges, and K-12 schools have either closed down or moved to distance learning, which for most teachers means going online. In this special COVID-19 series, we will unpack some of the major issues teachers and students are facing, as well as ways to deal with these issues. Please note, we are not going to pull punches here. We're going to be direct and blunt about what can be done and what can't be done. We're not going to be able to tell you how to keep things just the way they used to be. That's not possible. So with that in mind, Let's move forward. This is our 15th episode in the series, Best Practices for Moving Your Course Online. Now in episode 14, Dinor and I talked about how to lesson plan to make your course as simple as possible while still hitting all the important goals. In this episode, we're going to run down a list of some best practices that have shown up both in research and anecdotally for making online classes work when you have never or rarely taught a class online. One, repetition of due dates. Put them everywhere. In one of our Facebook pandemic discussion groups for teachers, one instructor shared this. Excessively redundant stated deadlines. Put them on the assignment, in the course calendar, in the syllabus, in a set of announcements sent out through email or text, a downloadable checklist, and as part of any real-time meeting you have with your students. Now, I'm ashamed to admit this, I didn't do this last spring. In fact, I left it off because I expected my students to just look at the syllabus. I know now that that's not good enough. I do need to put the due date everywhere. And in this coming semester in the fall, I'm going to do just that. I'm learning to use our school's learning management system more effectively. And part of that learning includes putting due dates for assignments and quizzes, both there and on the syllabus. I generally do some repeated due dates or at least repeated days of the week, like a reflection is going to be due on Thursday. But I also try and work in flexibility for students who work or who have caregiving obligations and let me know ahead of time. The other thing, number two, is a description of each lesson, each reading, each lecture, etc., with a generously estimated time needed to do this. If it would take you an hour, assume it's going to take your students two to three times that. And Two times if your course is a more advanced major specific course because you can depend on the students having some background knowledge. Three times if it's general ed or introductory course because you can't depend or count on students having any background knowledge in your field. Now, one of the things this will do is it will really force you to evaluate how much time am I expecting students to spend on my course? In spring 2020, a lot of faculty made a fairly newbie mistake of adding on more and more assignments and more and more readings because they assumed they're gonna be home. Students are gonna be home. They're gonna have lots of free time. 
I now put time estimates on everything, both in the syllabus and on the outside of the module folder to make sure students know how much time they can expect to spend on any given assignment. And also to make sure I'm not saddling them with 40 hours of work per week when I'm teaching a three credit, nine hours a week course. This really builds on our COVID-19 episode 13 about going modular. Group your lessons by theme, whether that means type of theory, the time period you're studying, types of reaction, or chapters from a book. And some keywords to focus on that Adam said are generously estimated time. Do not assume that your students have access to consistently strong internet or to a device that can access it. And build in some plans in case they need help for circumstances beyond their control. And these could be flexible due dates, generous time allotment on tests and quizzes, allowing a limited redo of a quiz through the learning management system or through email if internet connection keeps timing out for your students during the middle of the test or the quiz, and maybe making each individual quiz or assignment lower stakes for students. A recent article in Inside Higher Ed, which we'll include in the show notes, listed additional practices as research-based and effective. So counting on from our two that we've already shared, a third one is live sessions geared around students asking questions and participating in discussions. Now, please note, this is not professor lectures and students listen. That's not what we're talking about here. When my courses were in person, I would give a reading quiz at the start of class, and then I'd spend some time going over each item on the quiz that confused the students. This coming fall, I plan to use Kahoot to quiz them on concepts before I hold a live meeting. And I'm going to announce, all right, based on the Kahoot quiz, I'm going to go over these four concepts in the next open class meeting. I'll send that out via text message. And after that, I'll give the students who are coming to the live meeting, which will be optional, free reign to ask questions or get into breakout rooms so they can dig more deeply into the concepts that are still giving them trouble. My own lectures are a mix of these. So I will lecture to students who can make it and want to sit in on lectures. And just as I did when we met face-to-face, I pause a lot during my lectures to have my students ask me questions. They can make comments on the material. I want this to be a discussion with them. I post my students' slides ahead of time so that my students have the option of looking at what their upcoming lessons are about, and they can start prepping questions before we meet. The fourth thing that you can do is offer real-world examples, especially now when COVID is the elephant in everyone's bedroom, living room, office, and Zoom room. Now, do check in with your students about using COVID-specific examples, and try to limit those examples to one maybe every two weeks or so, because right now, their whole lives are COVID, and so are ours. Everything's affected from the job, to the friendships, to the classes, to the home life. But if it's actually really relevant to what you're talking about in a specific lecture, don't be afraid to include it as part of what you're studying. For example, I saw a meme that went around Facebook just this week and it said, hey, look at this. This looks a little bit hinky. Their COVID rate has jumped by like 2,000 people every day, but this chart doesn't seem to show it. And it was basically showing a chart where they changed what each color on the chart was ranked as from chart number one to chart number two so that it looked like there was no real change. That would be a valid thing to bring up in, say, a research methods class to say, hey, you know, fun with graphics. Look how we're playing hinky, you know, or we're playing silly buggers with people's perception of where we're going with COVID. Perfectly valid. 
in our COVID-3 episode, we talk about teaching the crisis. So you might find some helpful ideas in that episode as well. The fifth thing is offer frequent quizzes. This one was surprising, but students apparently felt that frequent quizzes kept them on their toes. It might be a good idea to create quizzes based on the quiz bank, which students can use as practice quizzes to test their own knowledge and create the final exam from all of the quiz banks with random questions. And I plan on doing that, providing my students with practice quizzes from the quiz bank for each lesson so that they have some practice on the questions before their counts for credit quizzes in the final exam. The main thing when you do this is not to make your class score heavily weighted toward what they get on the quizzes. Make sure you also give them assignments where they have to explain or demonstrate understanding of the content in some way beyond just defining a term or a concept, which is mainly what quizzes do. So get beyond that. Use the quizzes to increase their knowledge base. Rather, don't weight the score heavily towards the quizzes. I'm replacing my higher stakes exam with more frequent but lower stakes quizzes. Each quiz is going to be a bit more focused on specific parts of lessons rather than being more cumulative or comprehensive. And this hopefully means students are able to score better on quizzes because there's a little less material on each quiz and making the quizzes lower stakes means hopefully there's a little less stress on each student for each quiz. And for me, that means going from something like 15 to 20% per test down to 10% of the grade per quiz so that there's a little bit more wiggle room and a bad test score, bad quiz score doesn't hurt the overall grade as much. The sixth thing you can do is offer your students personal messages. Yeah, and I found that I started doing this more or less by accident when we had to go online back in March. I started recording a weekly message for my students, and it was part encouragement, you know, hey, we're going to get through this, part updates on what was coming up. Remember, you've got an exam next week. Remember, you've got this part of the paper due next week. Remember that if you're going to do the journals, they're coming up, you know, this Friday. And part acknowledgement that this situation was messy and uncomfortable for everyone. And I had multiple students tell me both during the term and in emails after that that really helped them for me to be human with them. And many of them looked forward to it every week to see me saying, yeah, this really sucks. And I understand that, but we'll get through this. We will get through this. And kind of like Adam, I messaged my students once campus closed and I tried to do so pretty regularly. I may have gone a little overboard initially because I was updating available resources as far as things like internet connection, Wi-Fi hotspots, counseling services, and I was also sending my students calming videos or things they could do either on their own or with their families. So finding links to museums online, or I remember posting a live stream of the Northern Lights to help students who needed it in a way outside of school material. I learned to cut back a little bit on the messages just so that I wouldn't overwhelm my students, but I wanted them to know that I was still available to help them and to talk to them, and that just because we couldn't see each other in person didn't mean that I'd forgotten them. The seventh thing you can do, give assignments that have the students express what they have learned. We may dread reading essays, but if we make the course content relevant to the real world and ask students to explain what they've taken away from it, these kinds of assignments will feel more like conversations with the students and less like rote work. Yeah, I have an assignment I've mentioned several times. I call it a journal. And I have students answer five questions about the module, the whole module, so all the lessons. And these questions kind of work on getting at their feelings and opinions about what they learned, what stuck with them, what is maybe still giving them trouble. And so I'll just 
give you folks the questions. They are, what were the three most important things you learned in this module? And explain each one in a paragraph each. The second one is, what was your muddiest point? This is where they can tell me what confused them. So if I get, you know, 10 students out of 14 saying, I don't understand this anomie thing, I really don't, then I know I didn't cover it well, I'll cover it in a live meeting the next time. I'll say, okay, nobody seemed to get anomie, let's talk about this. The third question I ask them is, what would you like to learn more about from this module? And I tell them in advance, nothing is not an acceptable answer. They've got to find something. So I have had students say things like, I would like to learn why you expected us to know this. Okay, that's really not an okay answer, but I'll, I'll let it go the first time and I'll say from now on, I want you to talk about something where you'd like to really do a lot more digging when we only had like two minutes to cover this and you wish it had been 20. And then the fourth question I ask them is, how does this module relate to something you've already learned in this class or in another class or through your life experiences? And again, I tell them it's not okay to say nothing. They have to actually answer this question. And I tell them how to do it too. I say, this reminds me of what happened when I was in sixth grade camp, when this thing happened and it really looks like this concept that we talked about and here's why. Okay, that's a valid answer. And I actually do give them an example of that when I first assign this to say, this is what this needs to look like. Do I get some nearly word for word paraphrases that look an awful lot like what I wrote? Yes, but it allows them to practice. And this is not a high stakes assignment. And then finally, I ask them, how will you use what you've learned in this module after you're done with college? Some of them will misinterpret that as in order to finish college. I'll accept that, I'll accept that. But the goal is for them to apply it to their lives. And this is all allowing the students to express what they've learned and tie it to their lives. And that makes it more personalized and it makes them feel more connected to what they're learning, I found. They really like the journals. And another way you can handle this is by posting some of these questions as discussion boards for your students and let them respond both to you and to their peers. I'm teaching a sociology of law class. So I might say, how has your view of the law changed since uh, class began? It gives them a chance to think about maybe what they thought about the law and what we've gone through a particular unit or for the term, if it's towards the end of the term. I might ask them, how have you interacted with the law? And that lets me know kind of their experiences and it lets me know why people are interested in this class beyond just, I'm taking this for credit. It's a chance for them to express themselves. Like Adam said, it's lower stakes. So it's not like their entire grade run, rides on getting quote unquote, the right answer for this. And it lets them participate. And I give credit for my students participating both when they respond to my questions and when they respond to each other, as long as they're doing so thoughtfully. Now, the eighth item that we got out of the research uh, in that Inside Higher Ed article is break course activities up into shorter pieces. And this may feel very difficult to do at first if you're used to going in and just talking for 45 minutes or an hour about some topic, but every assignment has steps. So breaking the course up into shorter, digestible pieces, this is going to help students feel less overwhelmed, especially if you take the time to explain why there are so many small activities. So for example, I used to give lectures that might have lasted an hour. And now I break them up into three or four smaller lectures of 10 to 20 minutes tops. That way the student can watch one part of the lecture and go away and do other things that they need to do like caregiving or go to their job. They come home, they watch another part of the lecture. And I just tell them the reason there are so many small activities is so that no one activity is going to take up four hours of your time with no break. I don't want to do that to you. 
when I first started teaching, I used to make outlines and drafts for my term paper optional rather than mandatory. And not surprisingly, the students who brought their work in, listened to feedback, and worked with that feedback generally did better on their final papers than the students who didn't. But my mistake was not making the outlines and the drafts mandatory, and I had to learn to change that. Now, there's still some variation in how my students write their papers, but I have a lot fewer students struggling because making the outline and drafts mandatory means that my students have to think about their paper well before the last minute, and hopefully that translates into more time writing rather than more time waiting. It also means that when they do go to write their papers, they've thought in depth about their paper at least two or three times, including time in class, so that they're not writing a totally new paper at the last moment. The ninth thing you can do is group projects. Group projects happen outside of class in most classes anyway, and they're a great way for students to build community and camaraderie. So this fall, I plan to have open meeting times scheduled during or instead of class lectures. So I'll provide breakout groups for students who come in and say, hey, you know, I'm here with Mary and, and Todd and David, and we need to talk about our group assignment. Could we go into a breakout room? Now, I don't know for sure if Zoom will allow me to just take, say, three students and stick them in a breakout room while everybody else is meeting, but I'll find out. I typically have my intro students do group research projects. And when we meet face-to-face, -face, these are usually field notes or short surveys. And this term, I might have my intro students do short surveys through things like SurveyMonkey or through Google surveys, or I'll have them do a content analysis of news articles on a subject that they choose. I won't have them do field notes because I don't want to have my students expose themselves to the virus for a grade, but I do want them to develop a sense of togetherness and I want to teach them how to work together. And in order to avoid free riders, part of my student's grade will include a group assessment on what each person did, how much they contributed. The 10th thing that that Inside Higher Ed article talks about is breakout groups during a live class. Just as putting students into groups during an in-person class often helps them develop their learning skills, breakout rooms on Zoom can accomplish much the same purpose. Now, I recommend that you practice how to do this with a group of friends before you do this live with your students so you can understand how Zoom or whatever video conference program you're using provides and manages breakout rooms. One of the things I know you can do is you can put them all in breakout rooms and then you can drop in on each one and say, hey, okay, so what's going on? And this is kind of like walking around the classroom when they're working in groups in the classroom. It's not that different. Use recorded lectures and videos from external sources such as TED Talks. And that's the 11th point. And we'll be doing some separate episodes soon on how to accomplish some of these methods, like how to record your own video lectures. So don't worry about recording every single lecture you have right now, but do move toward doing that whenever you can, because that's going to provide the students with the content without you having to perform live for an audience two or three times per week per class. I love using John Oliver videos when I teach, because the research his writers do is solid, and he's a lot funnier than I am. I make sure to post the videos, you can find them on YouTube, on my course's learning management system, so that students can access the appropriate video or videos for each lecture, even if they happen to miss class one day. I prefer to post the links rather than embed the videos into my PowerPoint, just so I can reduce bandwidth needs for my students. Now, if we're talking about what works, 
we should also talk about what doesn't. And here are two things that generally do not work when we move a class online, so try to avoid them. Number one, synchronous lectures where all students have to attend at a specific time and have their microphones and cameras on. This is what Flower Darby calls a rookie mistake. And Flower Darby is an experienced course designer. A rookie mistake is a mistake born from inexperience. These mistakes create an enormous amount of inequity for students as a microphone or camera can reveal parts of their private life to their instructor or to their classmates that may be embarrassing or stigmatizing. It's very tempting to try and recreate the in-person classroom dynamic by using video conferencing, but it doesn't work. And often it can be harmful to the students and their learning process. The other one is adding lots of new assignments. This is another rookie mistake because the person doing it is assuming that students have tons of free time now that classes are all online. That's not the case. An online class takes at least as much time as an in-person class, and it may take more for many students because they haven't yet mastered the ability of managing their time independently and well. So we'd also like to note that the Inside Higher Ed article says that the teachers who had the most success used a wide range, lots of diversity in the different what works techniques, but they were also about twice as likely as other respondents to have experience teaching online. That group was about 20% of the professors interviewed for the study. So that means about 80% of them were fairly new to teaching online, which explains the lower levels and lack of variety in their practices. Given how many of these best practices will probably seem new to you, we're planning a series of COVID-19 episodes that will go into more depth on how to make them happen. Keep an ear out for these new episodes, which will be coming fairly soon. So that's what we have for you in this special episode of Learning Made Easier. Please send this to other professionals and students who may be facing these issues. The easiest link to share is probably our Patreon, patreon.com slash learning made easier. If you're able to support us right now, we would really appreciate it. And please join us next time for our next COVID-19 episode where we'll revisit the question of engagement with new ideas that research has revealed since we recorded episode four. And we'll see you then. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. We look forward to seeing you next week.